Morning, church. Morning, Nancy. Welcome back. A lot of you may know that uh, uh, last year, Nancy got a kidney transplant. Uh, along with that came uh, a really bad infection. Uh, they were finally able to, to treat that. She was in the hospital from February until last Friday. And today she's back in church. So let's thank God for wonderful uh, working God. God is good. Well, today we're um, starting a, a new series on uh, the prophet uh, of Elijah. And uh, Elijah is known for a, a lot of things. Uh, he's probably best known uh, for taking a stand uh, against the king, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. He was against overwhelming odds and yet he won. But did you also know that, that he was one of two people who did not die? who were taken up into heaven, Elijah, uh, in a chair at the fire. Did you know that he is mentioned um, in the book of Malachi as one who would come back to earth to return the hearts of, of children back to their parents before the Lord comes? And did you know that Jesus uh, mentions him as well as having come back in the life and ministry of, of John the Baptist? Uh, did you know that on the, the Mount of Transfiguration that that we see Elijah and Moses alive with Jesus. And, and Peter, who, who is so enthralled by it all, wants to, to build a, a shrine in honor of, of these three. And did you know that in the epistle of, of James, that he mentions him as a model of faithful praying. And he states this, this simple verse. He says that Elijah was a human being just like us. And so the Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers, and even Jesus all saw Elijah as one of the greatest uh, saints of God. Now, Elijah lived in the 9th century B.C. You see, after Solomon, after King Solomon's death, a nation had a civil war, and, and they broke into two nations. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judea, with the capital in Jerusalem, the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria. And because the temple is in Jerusalem, very, uh, very quickly the northern tribe forsakes the worship of God and then they desert God as well. In the northern kingdom there's a lot of political instability, there's assassinations, there's coup d'etats as they go through a succession of of evil and corrupt kings. And just when it appears as though things cannot get any worse, they do. Much worse. And here's what the, the writer of 1 Kings says in chapter 16. Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of, of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Then did all the kings of Israel before him. And so we see this huge shift in the political and, and moral climate of Israel. And it's into this mess that God sends the prophet Elijah. And Elijah, we'll discover, has no problem uh, addressing corrupt power. And so he goes to Ahab in the direction of God, and he announces God's judgment, a three-year drought. Now that sounds kind of weird. Why, why in the world send a drought? But there's a reason. You see, Ahab and Jezebel have become Baal worshippers, and Baal is the Canaanite storm god who is responsible for bringing rain. And so Elijah is directly challenging the authority of Baal to bring rain. What Elijah contends that is the Lord God who brings rain, and that this same God is Lord over all of creation. So Elijah speaks the word of God to the king, and the weather forecast changes for the next three years. But obedience to God's word can be costly, especially it goes against the prevailing winds of culture. You see, when a prophet speaks God's word to the head of state, there's a good chance that he's going to lose his head. And so God tells Elijah basically to run for his life, to run east as far as he can, to, to cross the river Jordan, go into the east, and, and he tells him to hide in this ravine called the Kiriath Ravine. It's far away from Samaria, far away from from the power of Ahab. Now the word curious means literally cutting or separation. And it refers to the physical attributes of this wilderness area. But for Elijah, it's a separation. It's a, it's a cutting off from all of civilization. It is a time in the wilderness. There's no restaurants. There's no Holiday Inn. There's no grocery stores. There's no Walmart. There's no cell phone service. There's no people. And this is really the last place that Elijah wants to be. It was not Elijah's choice. And I'll tell you, it wouldn't be my choice either. You can see a picture there. The Kiriath Ravine is no place you'd want to spend much time. But here's the thing. A lot of times we learn things in the wilderness that we can learn no place else and one of the big things that Elijah is about to learn is God's provision. Look at verse 6. It says this. The ravens, the ravens, brought him bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And so Elijah is being fed by these birds. You see, the wilderness has a, a hundred different ways to kill you. The wilderness is not a fun place to be. But have you ever noticed that it seems like lots of Bible people have to spend time in the wilderness? Israel spent, when they left Egypt, spent 40 years in the wilderness. Elijah has to go and spend time in the wilderness. Even Jesus himself spends 40 days in the wilderness after his baptism, but before his, uh, his ministry. And what we discover is that the wilderness is a place of testing. That in the wilderness, there's this, this time of, of temptation. But it's also a place of great learning and great transformation. You see, God seems more interested in our spiritual growth than he does our comfort. With Moses, 
And the people of Israel, they learn how to depend upon God for their daily provisions. They really have no choice. They have to depend upon God's daily manna. There's no food supply. There's no dependable source of drinking water. And so their very survival depends upon God providing. And, and Jesus, he in the wilderness, he learns uh, what temptation feels like. And, and he learns how to keep God first and foremost in his life. See, the truth is that most of us here in this room will experience the wilderness from time to time. And we may find ourselves tested and tried and tempted. But more often, what we're going to learn in the wilderness is to rely upon God's abundance. And in this time, Elijah learns how to trust God and God alone for his daily bread. You see, the wilderness is a terrible and frightening place, but it's also a place of great beauty. There are things that you can learn in the wilderness that you won't learn any other place. You see, it's, it's in the wilderness that we are plunged into this awareness of, of danger and death. At the very same moment we are plunged, if we let ourselves be, into an awareness of the great mystery of God and the very preciousness of our lives. Folks, it's when I've been spiritually in the, in the wilderness that I have grown the most. Because it's in the wilderness where I come face to face with God. And it's where he confronts me. And it's where I'm tested. It's where I take the test and I either pass or I fail. I become more or I become less. I either grow in my faith or I regress in my faith. See, in the wilderness is where all the toys of civilization are stripped away. And we become confronted with who we are what we become. And it's there that Elijah learns how to have this radical trust in God. Well, it's not long before the drought has an impact on the brook that Elijah is drinking from and, and he has to move on. It seems like God is saying, okay, Elijah, you, you've learned, you've learned about my abundance here. Now I'm going to I want you to go on. We're going to teach you something else. And in verse 8, it says that God's word came to him and said, Go at once to Seraphath in the region of Sidon and stay there. For I have directed a widow to supply you with food. A widow. Isn't that interesting? Throughout the Old Testament, God commands for the widow to be cared for and protected, you see. And even in the early church, there was a group of deacons whose job was they organized themselves to make sure that the widows of the church were cared for. Because in those days, there was no safety net. If you lost your husband, you were dependent upon relatives for your very survival. If you had no relatives, then you were dependent upon charity. You had nobody to stand up for you. So oftentimes, they were taken advantage of or they were abused. And so God comes and he tells Elijah this, that this widow is going to take care of you through this drought. And, and not only is she a widow, but, but, but she's also a heathen widow. I mean, she, she's non-Jewish. She, she lives up north of Israel. She lives between two cities, Tyre and, and Sidon. She doesn't worship God of Israel. She has no idea who the God of Israel is. And this is the one who's going to take care of them. Uh, in fact, Jesus mentions this very fact when he is in his hometown of Nazareth. He says that, that God sent Elijah to a, a non-Jew. And it makes the, Jesus' hometown, the villagers, so mad that they want to kill him. But God has a plan. And Elijah trusts God word, God's word, so he goes. 
And when he arrives, he immediately finds this widow, this woman alone, and she's, she's gathering sticks to, for a fire. And so he kind of tests her. He kind of encourages her to take one step, and he asks, for, asks her for a drink of water. Now, water is scarce. After all, it's a drought. But it is more plentiful in her life than food. And so she says, okay, and she goes to get Elijah a cup of water. And as she's about 20 feet or so on her way to her home to get some, some, some water, Elijah calls out, oh, and by the way, by the way, could I have some bread too? And this is just a little bit too much. You can, you can almost see this woman digging in her heels and, and the dust began to fly. Bread? How can you ask me for bread? I have a, enough bread for maybe one more loaf for my son and I to eat. And then, then I have no more. I don't know that I'll get any more. In other words, she's saying our starvation in this drought is a foregone conclusion. She, she's scared. She clearly sees that her future is about to end badly. Elijah is asking her for more than what she can give. But Elijah challenges her. In verse 13, he says, go. Make your last loaf of bread. But bring me some first. And then give it to your family. And then he gives her a promise from God. Your flour will not run out. You do this thing and your cooking oil will not run out for God is going to take care of you through this drought. And so this widow of Seraphath, she has a choice. She can trust what she sees and feed her family what little she has left. Or she can choose what she does not see. Give her last morsel of bread away to a stranger trust the promise of God that he will provide. I think it's interesting how she responds. She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives. Not her God. Your God. She, worship, she worships Baal. Not the Lord God. This is Elijah's God. Let me ask you, what would you do in a similar situation? I know what I would do. I, I'd take care of myself first. I'd do the responsible thing. I'd take care of my family. After all, charity begins at home, right? Isn't that in the Bible? Someplace? I think it's there. Maybe not. But Elijah can challenge this woman despite her fear to give to God first and then watch God supply her needs because God, because Elijah has already learned that lesson in the Kiriath Ravine. He experienced firsthand God's supernatural provision. And in verse 13, it says, She went away and did as Elijah had told her. She does it. And God does it. And God provides for her. See, the unleashing of God's provision came not by her hoarding what little she had, by giving it up to God. And God provides in this abundant and supernatural way. There is more than enough. You see, folks, we need to learn that, that trusting in God's abundance comes, and it comes oftentimes in steps. 
You have to see, trusting God can be very frightening. So, so God challenges us sometimes to take little steps, little steps, one at a time. Trusting in God's abundance is, is learning to give in small steps, growing little by little in our trusting until we get to the place where we believe that God wants us to be. And so the widow of Seraphath, she, she arrives at this level of trust and steps, first with the giving of water, and then with the giving of her last morsel of bread, and then she gives her heart. You see, this was the ultimate goal that God had in mind to win her heart. And here is the rest of the story. A year or so later, this widow's son became ill and died. And she thought it was because that of some sin in her life. She, she thought that, that God had caused this catastrophe in her life. This is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. This is what she says to Elijah. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? First she loses her husband. Now she loses her only child. And she thinks that God is responsible. She thinks there was some sin in her life that has caused God to do this, but he hasn't. And sometimes bad things happen, don't they? It happens like this. Everything's going fine in our life. We buy a house. We, we sign up for 30 years of mortgage payments. We decorate it. We sign up for four years of car payments. And we fill up our calendars. And we've accepted all of our responsibilities. And then suddenly, like Elijah, we find ourselves on the run or running running for our lives because something happens. There's a, a radical change in our health, or there's a, a radical change in our employment status, or there's a radical change in our thinking or in our emotions. And suddenly, we find that our civilized life is out of control. And we find ourselves out in that wilderness, and we are breathless, we are stunned, and we are confused. And we think, how did this happen? How did I get myself in this situation? And we're not there because we want to be there. And we want to get back to our comfortable routine and civilization, but we can't seem to find our way back. Have you ever been in that situation? Do you know what it feels like? Elijah speaks to this woman. Give me your son. And he takes the boy's cold, lifeless body up into his room in this widow's house. He lays the boy down on the bed and he prays with amazing honesty. Come on, God. Why did you let this happen? God, I, I know you. I know what you can do, God. Well, why did you save this, this boy and his mother from starvation only to let him die now? Come on, God. And he takes his warm body and he, he lays down on top of the cold, lifeless body of this boy. And he prays one of the most radical prayers in the Bible. God, restore this boy to life. I mean, is that a gutsy prayer? Did you do that? When was the last time he went to a funeral? Pray for that body to rise from the dead. Would you do that? I've been to lots of funerals. Sometimes I've been tempted to do that. 
but I know better. But there's a reason why God did that. It's really kind of amazing. Verse 17, or chapter 17, though, says this. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. The word of the Lord in your mouth is true. She sees her dead son rise from the dead, and it wins her heart. She comes to trust the word of God. This woman's faith has been deepened by steps. First, drink of water. Secondly, the last morsel of her. Now, can she trust God with her heart? You see, the chief end of the Christian life is for us to trust God on a deeper and deeper and deeper level. Tom White died January the 7th, 2011. Most of you don't know who Tom was. But he had a life goal. And his life goal was to give away $75 million. <laughs> he was a Boston businessman. And uh, he was asked why he would do something like that. I mean, most of us don't have $75 million, period. Most of us don't have a million dollars, let alone to give it all away. But he said, he said, well, get, get, tell me why I shouldn't give it away. He said, my wife's taken care of. My children are going to be okay. And he said, Jesus wants me, I think, to give this money away. He wants me to use me to help make this world a better place. But Tom White served the boards of Harvard Divinity School, Boston College, the JFK Library, and, and on the New England Patriots. His company was the one who built Foxborough Stadium. But his proudest relationship was with the nation of Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. He was involved in health and, and justice projects there for, for decades. And when his alma mater, Harvard University, called him up and asked him for a donation, he said, no, wait a minute, you have $15 billion in your endowment fund, and you want me to take my money that I'm giving to Haiti, and really, really, what do you think I should do? That's Tom White. And here's what he said before he passed away. He said, I'm just sorry that I couldn't give more. Now, I don't know Tom White, didn't know him, but based on what he said, I think God will want his heart, don't you? Let me remind you of, of one more story about a widow found in Mark's Gospel. You, you know the story. Uh, Jesus is sitting by the temple. He's observing the procession of people who are bringing uh, their offerings to the temple treasury. And suddenly Jesus gets really excited. He jumps up and he says to his disciples, Man, did you just see that? The disciples are looking and all they see is this poor widow who just puts a few pennies in. They're like, Jesus, come on, man, get a grip. It's just a couple pennies. Jesus says, Yeah, just a couple pennies. But don't you realize that was all the money that she had. That's, that's it. Just a penny. But it's everything. And this widow, whose name Mark's gospel doesn't even bother to provide, becomes this incredible example of trusting in God's abundance. Some place along the way, God had won this widow's heart. 
See, I, I imagine that the trust this widow must have, have had in God to put in all she had, not knowing where her next meal would come from, was, was based upon something that she'd experienced. Or maybe it was, was based upon the story of the widow of Seraphat, that someplace along the way she had, she had heard the story of this widow who had given everything. Did she know that story? What did this widow know who, who put in a few pennies? What did she know that, that we don't know? See, we give out of our abundance. We give out of our discretionary income. We give a, a few hours a, a, a week to the Lord, but this woman, she gave everything. Everything. How does that happen? Can it happen to us? I want to tell you, I want to tell you one more story about a widow. Her name is Cecilia Johnson. She was a member of, of a congregation in another church long, many years ago. And on Cecilia's 90th birthday, her granddaughter gave her a gift, a hot air balloon ride around Hancock County, 90 years old. And when they landed, a couple of Cecilia's friends came up to her. And they said, Cecilia, weren't you afraid? to ride in that balloon? And Cecilia said, nah, not really. But privately, just between the three of us, I never put my full weight down in that basket. <laughs> what would it take for you and I to begin taking our most valuable possessions and giving them to God, to allow Him to grow our faith deeper and deeper and increasingly learn to put our whole weight down on God. See, what we learn today is that we can trust God. It's about a history of God's faithfulness. It's about taking little steps as we go deeper and deeper in our faith. Maybe there's a step today that, that you need to take. Maybe it's time for you to do something rather than just sitting in a pew or more than just taking one more Bible study. Maybe God is calling us to partner with the marginalized, with, with the lonely, the elderly, the orphaned, the under-resourced. Maybe God is calling us. You know, I'm so excited about those 80 young people who are going to Appalachia, those 11 people who are on their way to Mexico. These are people who understand this one simple fact, that we are a sent people. That we've been called for a mission. What's that step for you? What's the next step that you need to take to trust God? Let's pray. God, bring to our, our mind right now what that next step is. Maybe it's a, a small step, a cup of water, giving away some bread. God, we know that the ultimate plans for you to win our hearts. So we want to give you everything. We want to give you, not just out of our abundance, God, we want to give you all that we have, including our lives, our hearts. And then take us, God, and use us. Help us to take that next small step to full and complete surrender, we pray.